0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Chris Rising. Chris leads Rising Realty Partners, a family-owned, vertically integrated, largely office property company in Los Angeles. Chris co-founded the company with his father, Nelson Rising, one of the legends in West Coast real estate, and coincidentally one of my first search clients from back when he was the CEO of Catellus. This is a very special episode. Since Chris also hosts a podcast interview series, his is called The Real Market Podcast with Chris Rising, and we essentially recorded each other for a joint episode. There will be some interesting observations from each of us about what we've learned as podcast hosts, and then, as usual, in our series, but this time for each of us, we'll talk about our work journeys as well as the focus of each of our businesses. In Chris's case, he'll talk about rising realty partners and especially about the values that his company lives by, particularly around sustainability, diversity, and technology. I encourage you to try out Chris's podcast, where this episode appeared several weeks ago, and listen in on his other episode with interviews with real estate leaders. We will be joined mid-episode by Kyle Gehring from JLL, which is the sponsor of Leading Voices. Kyle leads JLL's Clean Energy Solutions Group and is based out of the firm's Los Angeles office. JLL is a global real estate services firm. They are reimagining the world of real estate by creating rewarding opportunities and amazing spaces around the world. For more information on JLL, visit jll.com voices. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If you like our series, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast Store, and feel free to email comments, questions, and feedback to me at my day job at Terra Search Partners. My email is matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. Enjoy the conversation with me and Chris. We'll kind of go back yeah. and forth and see where we are. And we'll also talk, which will be interesting, about real estate podcasts. Yes. Because we have two of the leading not-get-rich-quick real estate podcasts yeah, yeah, right here yeah. in this room.
1: You do it for the love of talking to people and and talking about real estate. Well,
0: certainly not us getting rich quick, but it is interesting. So if you Google real estate podcasts, there are a bazillion of them. They fall into basically two categories, three categories. Category one is how brokers could be more successful as single family residential brokers. And then the second is how to invest in real estate for the small investor. And there's 20 or 30 podcasts. I've been on a few of them that that's basically the theme. And then the other are urban planning or like what we do, which is talking to real estate leaders yeah. who are serious in the business and what that means.
1: Well, what what scared me when I first started looking at it was the exact, I you don't want to be the snake oil salesperson. Right. And when you really look at the beginning of, of real estate podcasts, it, it was basically taking an infomercial and putting it to a podcast. And so my thought when when I got into this was, it was actually a visceral reaction to the cost of conferences and how mm. there were people, I was fortunate growing up in this business with a father who was a leader. And so a lot of the names that, that they're now kind of on the, on the back nine. Um, but I knew them and I always thought that was such a great opportunity. And I got to know them cause I'd go to a conference and I'd meet them. And I started looking at the cost of conferences with our young people. And it's, you know, you run, run yourself out of business really quick. If you're going to, have every one of your younger people go to these conferences. Right. And so I said, well, you know, what what's a way to get people that I know in the business in front of people and there I don't think there's anything more personal than having ear, AirPods on and listening to two people talk. I mean, it's a very personal way and you get to know people. And so that really drove it. And then the other thing that drove it for me was I just I'm I'm so into technology that I read that that the CEO of Twitter and Square only works off an iPhone. And so my goal over the last six months is to see if I can move all of my technology to only using an iPhone. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm pretty darn close. So I love the idea of the efficiency of technology. And real estate's been the last place for it to show up. And so I think a lot of the conversations I have with people who are distinguished people in real estate also comes with, what are you doing about technology?
0: I got into the podcasting world through volunteering for ULI. Mm-hmm. And so ULI asked me, they didn't quite put it this way, but they said would you be the Terry Gross of ULI. Now mm-hmm. Terry Gross is in my head, you know, every other day and I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my god, what a blessing to be able to do that and mm-hmm. I interview people for a living anyhow." Yeah. So that opportunity was just couldn't say no to it. And you're right about, you know, we get to hear leaders in the industry talk on a panel or maybe a deep dive with a talk with a legend. Yeah. But this is even more intimate than you can in front of a room of a thousand people for you know, a t- 40 minute conversation. Yep. And it feels, there is a level of intimacy to the headphones as you describe, yeah. It's visceral.
1: Well, and, and I don't know if you found that, but I imagine you have is and on a podcast, people are pretty darn honest. You get on a stage, you look at everybody out there, all of a sudden, right. I don't know if I want to admit that I failed here or there, whereas you know, I think one of the best podcasts I did was with uh, Sonny Kelsey of Green Oak, and he talked. He great. and he talked about losing his job at Morgan Stanley and the effect it had on him, and and what's driven him. And it's so great to see their success now merging with with it's Bentel talking. Kennedy. Um, but that's something I don't think Sonny would have set up on a stage, or you know, Lisa Picard talking about her having uh, losing her job, and then it made me be very honest about some of the things I've gone through and me losing jobs and. Um, and I think that's really important for audiences to hear. I think otherwise, I think what we do loses its its value if we, if we don't get people to be honest about their life experience.
0: Mm -hmm. I, I think that absolutely true. The question, and we'll see in this conversation when you and I get vulnerable, how do you ask those questions where, or have a thoughtful conversation where someone's willing to be vulnerable? either about their career or about their life and the things that have meaning. Mm-hmm. And what what I also find out about interesting about real estate is there is meaning in the business that we have. And so I keep looking for that in these conversations. I don't and what meaning means in the world of industrial real estate and logistics is one thing, but it's become even more deeply meaningful in that world over the past years, mm-hmm. right? Because the whole retail world's changed. But certainly in housing community development, how we're making our cities, and that people find that to have value from where they're coming. This is not just about making money. And that maybe there is the distinguishing factor with the get rich quick thing, because that's not what we're talking about, even though we're talking to billionaires.
1: Yeah, very true. I think um, one of the things, well, let's start with the the vulnerability and getting to people to be really talk about real estate in an intimate way, is I think- One of the things that the podcast allows you to do uh, is assure people that if you go off on a bad tangent, we can edit that out. Just be honest about things. And I think that gives people a familiarity and a comfort. I gotta tell you, I don't think we've ever really edited any, everybody hears it and they say, oh, I like that, I feel good that I said that. Um, The other thing I think that's really happening in real estate that is different, and I think it's being driven by technology, is that people expect much more out of their real estate experience than they ever used to. People were really, really used to be willing to have very mediocre and I would say sometimes dangerous experiences with their real estate, whether it was industrial real estate, office. Are you talking planning. about
0: consumers or are you talking about
1: owners? Uh, both, <laughs> Okay. I think both. I think the, I mean, I think people really didn't have any expectation when they showed up at the office building that that office building was supposed to do anything for them. Um, and I think a lot of office buildings killed people over the years with asbestos and lead paint and Mm -hmm. the, where we, we are today. We all, because technology, everything from as simple as Yelp to sensors in buildings allow us to have a more intimate uh, relationship with these edifices than we ever had before. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I see people demanding so much more because they can. And they expect it now. And people didn't used to. I mean, I think you go through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you had these wonderful buildings like Pac Mutual were in and all that. And the owners of those buildings were insurance companies who wanted to have a great place to be. But the multi tenant office building person basically said, here's your space. You just signed for 15 years. I'll see you at the end of 15 years. Totally true. And, and that's just not the case And anymore.
0: there's a wall of doorways, a hall yeah. full of doorways, yep. and you get to go into your doorway at the end yep. of the day or your company's doorway, and there's no other feeling to the experience of being at the office.
1: Exactly. Or apartments. I mean, think about it. so uh, the idea of a furnished apartment in the 80s, that terrible furniture and all that. You know, what amenities? There were no amenities. You take that box with a, with a sh- small shower and a bathroom, and that's what you get. And um, so I think our podcasts allow us today, if we – ask the questions the right way to get people to be very human and talk about their relationships with real estate that, Mm -hmm. and it's okay. And it didn't Mm -hmm. used to be okay. So, Mm
0: -hmm. well, and talk about Lisa Picard because, and she had a description and I'm going to get this wrong, but she called it the processional. Did she talk about that on your podcast as well? And it's an experience of your office building that is more intimate and more meaningful than it ever was before. And it's not the guy in a a trench coat with a hat on Mad Men, right? This is a different feeling. And Mm -hmm. she expressed it really well.
1: Well, I will tell you, I think you're onto something here. I think it's great. I distinctly remember when I was working for John Cushman in the late 90s. And John would, through his relationships, have some of the largest lease deals in the country and internationally. And I would travel with him and we would meet the CEO, always a, a white male, always a white male we would have a list of buildings we were gonna go see, and it was very clear where they, they were gonna go. They were gonna to go to one of three places, somewhere closer to their home, somewhere close to their country club, or somewhere close to their town club. That's right. And the, the discussions that would go on about the CEO was about what size their office was gonna be, and literally hand motions of, I don't care where those people sit. Right. And it was just the mentality of the day. Today, when we do tours and our projects, it's almost universal. You're going to have a committee, re- usually driven by HR. It's going to be probably more women than men. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be talking about does this space, is this an attraction for employees? Right. They look at real estate as a part of their benefits. And because of that, the experiences that people want and desire are far different than they used to be. Part of the things that uh, we work, has done is is bring that to the multi-tenant experience how
0: can i afford that yeah we're we're about to get a new lease and we're looking how can i afford that as a five person office
1: and that's where uh, we work and some of the competitors have stepped in but it's all experiential it's Mm -hmm. all experiential and when you live in a world where you're expected to be connected 24 7 even though we all talk about oh we got to put that phone away but everyone's expected to be connected when you live in a world where you're supposed to be a perfect parent and you're supposed to be at every sport game and every school play. When people are in an office, the idea that you come in and you shut the door and you have no human interaction, it's just not acceptable and mm-hmm. people don't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only people doing it are the people who are still at the who are who are still able able to produce income doing things in a way that's 20 or 25 years old and that's a very small segment. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I think Lisa's is a great example. I think there's a lot of people. I do think, though, that real estate as a whole is very slow. Right. But yeah. all
0: across the board in real estate, that bar is changing significantly. And I think maybe driven first by hospitality, because we yes. have those experiences going around the world yes. and then feeling it. And then we want that in our apartment. We want it in our condo. We yep. want it in our office building. So let's use that as a segue. Okay. I want to hear about your business. And, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll ask two questions at once which is a funny mashup, but talk about rising partners and what you guys do. Mm -hmm. But then also your dad who looms large, he was one of my first clients, (laughs) but he looms large as a large man, Mm -hmm. but he was that guy in the corner office. But first talk about your business, talk about your partnership with your dad and how this has grown and what you guys do.
1: Well, there's no way to talk about rising realty partners without talking about my father. So he and I never, for most of my adult life, never worked together. I, I went to Duke University, played football at Duke, and graduated with a double major. Came back. Double major in? in history and political science. Okay. Got to play for Steve Spurrier, which was an incredible experience. And I have lots of uh headball coach uh, stories that I can uh, go through. Um, he's the one who gave me a nickname that sticks today, which is High Rise. Uh-huh. We were stretching when I was a freshman, and he comes over and he goes, Chris, your dad builds a building, doesn't he? I said, yeah, coach, he does. He goes, Rising, I am gonna call you High Rise, and so most of my friends from college today call me High Rise. Anyway, I came back. I was uh, my first job was teaching high school. I taught at Loyal High School. I was coaching football, and I was involved in the drama department. Right. I um enjoyed teaching the first year; it was really passionate. The second year, I started to realize that the hearts game at recess was the same thing I did last year. The lesson I was presenting was basically the same thing I did last year. And I had great respect for everyone who made a career out of teaching. I wanted to do something more. Part of it was technology. I had had a compact computer. It was the only kind of portable computer. It was like a briefcase. And I was doing things on that that other people weren't. And I said, I don't know what I want to do. And I talked to my father. And my father had gone to law school. And he said, I think you can go to law school or business school. I thought law school was great. And so Mm -hmm. I applied to law schools. And um, ultimately to decide I didn't want to leave. I had a, a pretty nice life living down in the South Bay. When you, one at 23 could afford to do that, you can't do that anymore. Right. And uh, I went to Loyola Law School and that allowed me to keep coaching. And I came out and I, I practiced for a very short period of time uh, with, a, with a legend in the business name. Uh, I, I was at Pillsbury Madison and Sutro and I worked for a gentleman named Michael Meyer. Michael uh-huh. Meyer. Yeah. And, and had a great experience learning leasing and learning uh, uh, purchase and sale.
0: So was your goal in law immediately to be in real estate law?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And not entitlements though, because that's where your father's yeah, that's really where my genius. Yeah, that's yeah. where he was very successful.
1: Sure. But I got very, I mean, I still remember right before I started work, I said to my father, I said, dad, is is being a lawyer like being in law school? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I mean, I was like, do you study all the time? And do I have to read documents all the time? He's like, oh no, don't don't worry about it. I still remember my first week at Pillsbury. They brought me in, dark wood, very claustrophobic feeling right. office space, put me in a small office, handed me a lease and shut the door. And I called my dad and I said, this is exactly like being in law school. was exactly. like, yeah, well, I didn't want to discourage you. <laughs> so I, I just, it didn't, it didn't fit what I wanted to do, even though I had the experience of having wonderful mentors there. And, but it, if I hadn't have gone to law school, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity with John Cushman. Mm-hmm. And John had Lynn Williams, who's a legend in the business as a broker in her own right, had been working for John as his right hand. She had moved on to become her own, um, her own broker and, and build a team. And so John was looking for a chief of staff. And so I got mm. to do that for three or four years and got to see every kind of deal you could possibly do.
0: What so, does chief of staff mean? It means write every letter,
1: be at every meeting, be mm-hmm. at everything, follow up, give John feedback. Um, I mean, John goes, he's up 150%. Uh, he goes so hard that he really is benefited when he has someone there who can help him mm-hmm. not drop things, And even though but John's a legend. And, and yeah. uh, I'm very fortunate between Steve Spurrier, Mike Meyer, and, and John Cushman, and then obviously my father okay. to have some amazing experience. This rubs off. Yeah. And so so in 2003, um, I'd been working for John for several years. I started looking around. We sold Cushman Realty to Cushman and Wakefield, Cushman Wakefield was much more, what is the five block radius that you're going to be a broker on? And I it just didn't work for me. And so I thought about, why well, don't see if I can, I kind of looked at my clients and said, I've got five clients. If I keep one and I keep a hundred percent of that commission, maybe I can do something for a year. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, of course, just gotten married at that point and didn't really tell my wife that this is what I was going to do. But we, um, I started, but I think I, at first I was like, I'll call it, the Flint Ridge Group, and keep it very nondescript. And then someone's like, "You have a great last name with a great father in the business. Call it Rising something." So I said, "Well, it's only me, so I'll call it the Rising Real Estate Group." And um, and I was able to do my first deal. I bought six two six Wilshire here uh, in downtown LA. I w- had met Oscar De La Hoya's money person, uh, Richard Safer, when I was working for John. I went to pitch him uh, over at Library Tower on this idea that. There's a Magic Johnson Theaters. Why isn't there a Golden Boy Theaters? And they said, that's a great idea, Chris. Where do you want to do it? And I said, well, I hadn't thought of that yet. Um, But I'm glad you want to do it. And on the way out the door, they said, you know, Oscar would really like to buy an office building. I'm like, well, that's something I might be able to do. I've run into a a gentleman named Dick Schnell, who a legend in the business in the sense that he's been around forever and very creative and done a lot of different deals. And I mentioned to him, I'd like to buy an office building. Uh, didn't really say hi, and he goes. I think I might know one, and we bought six two six. Oscar was my equity. Mm-hmm. And when you
0: set up your real estate company, was this to continue brokerage or this to- both? Kind of okay. anywhere I could make a fee. But now you're going to you're, now you're buying for your own account. Now I'm buying. Well, I didn't really have my Not own your own account, money. but you're buying. Yes, and, and I
1: took my brokerage commission, rolled it into the deal. Mm-hmm. I we were buying it from Michael Barker, Barker Pacific Group. Michael had bought it with Bow Post. Um, he didn't want to sell within a year because he didn't want it to be capital gain. So we had a long escrow. I was talking to Grubbin Ellis at the time because I'd never done property management. I didn't know what I was going to do there, but I figured I'd white label it as they say. Right as we were getting close, Michael calls me and says, Chris, um, you know, I just moved my office in here. What if I left money in the deal and partnered with you? I'll do the property management. You do the leasing. The building was empty. So there's a lot of lease fees there. At the time, it was a good move, and in retrospect, it was a horrible move because Michael's still in the building that we all still <laughs> own, and he's still getting property management fees, and I'm not getting any leasing fees. But nonetheless, it, it got me into understand property management. And so we've owned that since 2003, Oscar, Michael Barker, and I. And that kicked off me partnering with Michael on deals on one-off basis. We raised a fund together, and I was perfectly happy doing all of that. And... Um, my father in 2005 sold Cattellus, right? And um, you know he took over that company when it was uh, uh, valued about 400 million dollar market cap and sold it at a 5.8 billion dollar market cap. Great success. Eleven years. Went on to the um, board of Prologis for two years, and it was 07 high to the market. Things were going great. My dad just said, "I don't want to retire," and I said, "Okay, let's figure this out." We go, well, great. Let's start a business. You can come into my business, and we'll figure it out. We saw so, so that was kind of rising realty part I changed the name from real estate group to rising Realty partners oh right. seven that 07. was you
0: buy a whole ton of stuff? We real didn't quick? buy anything okay not. good. <laughs>
1: we started looking around saying we can't make sense of any of this uh-huh, so we started doing some consulting work for some people, and uh Robert day owned uh um Cabo Del Sol. He was looking to sell it. We did a big project down there, a uh, consulting project. So we were we we're starting to build something, but we didn't quite know what it was going to be. And then the world started to take a turn, and we got a call from the board at McGuire Properties.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My father said, "You know, would you? We're, we've asked Rob to step down. Would you want to take over? It's a 33 million square foot portfolio. It's in great distress. It's over levered. My dad's wife well, started this business with my son and another gentleman. So." if I come, they come. So we looked at it over a month or two, um, decided to go over and my father became chairman, CEO, and I became, um, head of asset sales. And, and it was difficult. There was a culture over there that had been built over the years, um, that reflected Rob and, and even though Rob and my father were partners. They weren't the same kind of people. Um, and I had never experienced anything about nepotism cause I never worked for my father before. And, I was a broker really in my mind, in my mind, I, I go make a commission, I support myself. Um, but boy, when I went over there, there was a lot of backbiting and, um, I'd be very honest that part of what's driven me since then is to prove all those people wrong, some Mm -hmm. very specific people. But nonetheless, um, we were there for about two years and in that time the company went from almost going bankrupt to recognizing we needed to take it from 33 million down to 14 which was basically the LA assets. So we sold off a bunch of assets, spent a lot of time with special servicers. We hit summer of 2010 and said, okay, now it's time to go raise capital. We got this great platform. The issue we dealt with was the activists who had brought us in Mm -hmm. specifically led by a hedge fund called JMB decided to sell. And then we were stuck. Then we had a board that was more professional board people making a lot of money between three and four boards, a right. you know, million dollars a year total and all this stuff for more. Well, the last thing they wanted to hear was the plan that my father and I presented, which was, we want to bring in $500 million. It can't come in all at once because we got to go do these, uh, Right, we have to negotiate on each of the assets we want to keep. And if all the money's in, they're going to ask us to pay off at par. That's not going to work. The stock price was down in the threes, and our view was anybody who owned stock was at option value. Um, what the board saw was a dilution. It was a 90% dilution. Right. And my father called me in and said, I just got a call from the uh, chair of the board and they want me to fire you. If you want me to quit, I'm going to quit too. And I was like, dad, <laughs> right. let's be rational about this. Uh-huh. I don't want to be here anyway. And why don't you take a few months and see what you can do. My father stayed, but he didn't stay much longer. He stay, I think this happened in August, and by January, he and, was gone. And
0: what's this time? This is oh not So oh we were there nine. in 2008 to
1: 2010. I left in August of 10. Uh-huh. He left in January of 11. Uh-huh. And then they brought in the gentleman who took, who wanted to be the CEO and he just sold everything off. Uh-huh. Hey, let's just go back for a second. Yeah.
0: So I'm just, just a comment and I'm curious about it. So you're at McGuire partners, which has history for your family. Cause yeah. your dad was one of Rob's long-term partners. Yes. He had a lot of partners go through over the years, but your dad, mm-hmm. one of the most storied partners And your, and the company had been mismanaged and messed up when, by the time you came in, but you're also at the worst part of the cycle. And anyone who wants to get a liquidity event on a board at the worst part of the cycle is making a bad decision by definition. Yes. I think it's what you said, but I'm translating yes, it into right. my words, yep. which is have a patient strategy versus the let's figure out what the value is today's strategy. And clearly LA has rebounded yes. amazingly well. Yes. So, and I think what's sad is it could
1: have been the basis for a company that would be a, an international company. Rebirth really well. Yeah. Because you just can't put those assets back together.
0: Yeah, it's just it, yeah. The, the one thing I take from the conversation is that you first of all you had the confusion for a team in their defense of yeah. a father son yeah. there, which is just weird. At a public Let's company fa- is weird. At a public company that's yep. that's has dynamics to it. The second is that you're in the darkest days of recession, never knowing how where well you're going to come back, and employees get into this kind of negativity. Yes cycle which had been in that company for a long time anyhow yes so it's the perfect storm of not working and you're not a big company guy no part of what you're saying
1: <laughs> part of what i'm saying is well, that kind of company <laughs> yeah. so yeah
0: rising 2.0 so where i
1: really have been driving the company is on technology mm-hmm. let's do more with less and we are a paperless office everybody communicate we do not use email to communicate we use asana we we use lots of technology in such a way where when we come to the office, it's like a clubhouse for a sports team. It's here to have collaboration. It's it's <laughs> not a place to just get work done because you can do almost everything on an iPhone or an iPad or, or for sure a laptop. Um, so we wanted technology to be a driver. And then the other thing that was really important to me um, is I, I saw early on that just by living in Pasadena, quite frankly, the, the climate change was real. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, you know summers this last august we had the hottest august we've ever had in pasadena and this february we had the coldest february we've ever had and i and i kept looking at you know how do you do things in the in the industry that we're in that is 40% of the carbon is that is emitted is through commercial mm-hmm. 30 uh, 70% of the electricity used in the united states is used by commercial real estate and i saw just dumb things happening all the time you, uh, there was a time you drive downtown at 10 o'clock at night and you'd see these buildings with nobody in it and the lights are on. Right. And you're just like, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, so I really wanted impact strategies, whether it was energy star ratings or when we did this, uh, our first project, which I'll talk about uh, here at PAC mutual. Um, I wanted to do something that was a statement about, Hey, this is a building that cares about the environment. And so we did two things. One is, uh, the project we're in here, we bought our first deal as rising realty partners. We bought in 2012, April, 2012, um, or, uh, yeah, April, 2012, it was three buildings here, historic building, the building you're in right now, 1908, it was built as the headquarters for, um, Pacific mutual life insurance company, uh, Pacific mutual life was founded by the four wise men of California, mm-hmm. Crocker and Huntington and Leland Stanford, uh, and Hollingsworth, right? I should know the fourth because I kind of live on (laughs) Knob Hill. But but it was the first insurance company west of the Mississippi. Uh And in 1906, it was based in San Francisco. There was an earthquake, as we all know. And if it wasn't for a young person running up to get the securities out of the safe, it would have been destroyed. So the board gets together and they say, we have to move this headquarters to a place where an earthquake can never take us down and where they don't have earthquakes. (laughs) (laughs) So they decided on on Los Angeles across from what was then Los Angeles park. And they built this, this was Olympic style building in 1908. Right. In 1922, they built the 12 story building right next door. That was the largest import of tile from Italy that had ever been done in the, uh, in the United States. It's a beautiful Beaux-Arts building. And then in 1927, they built the parking garage, which was the first underground parking garage. But from about the 1930s, when they redid the Olympic facade and did a, um, an Art Deco facade, it really didn't get touched. And what happened was in the 70s and 80s, there was no historic commission. People started putting in literally tile and bathrooms that looked like it should be Marina Del Rey on a Chips episode, uh, pink and mauve. And, and so when we bought it, what we saw was this isn't a 450,000 square foot building that's like Library Tower. These are three buildings and it's an urban campus. So we did things that were unheard of which were like ripping out uh, retail to create two corners between the two buildings so we could have two restaurants and that's now La Panca and Tendergreens. And we had a stairwell in the 80s when we had the first interstate fire. The city said, You got to put in sprinklers and you got to put in an exit stairwell. And they literally just put on an exit stairwell, put it in stucco and painted it beige. And it sat there from the 80s until we bought it. And I looked at that and said, Wow, if you took out the retail below it, that could be a small little courtyard and you could do the first vertical garden and mm-hmm. uh, green wall in Los Angeles. And that, will create a great retail spot. Well, that today, and you'll still see the green wall there that overlooks it's Beautiful Pershing Square right. is where Pachoon is. And one of the things we were very, we had Starbucks here, I, I like Starbucks, I think they're fine. But I also think that nur- the type of nourishment you have access to is important. And so we wanted a eclectic mix. And so we went early on Tender Greens, Pachoon, a French legitimate French baker, uh-huh. um, Le Pan Quatidien. So we wanted quality food op- options here. and. You know when we sold this to uh, Callahan Ivanhoe, it was we sold it for the highest price uh, uh, up to date in 2015. It was um, well over 400 bucks a foot, highest price in 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 Los Angeles at the time in 2015. A 90 percent lease building. I mean, it was hard to sell it. You know, I look down and I see the that's the terrazzo floor from 1908, and and it means a lot to me. Um, But the idea was what else could we do? We were the first privately owned historic registered building to get lead platinum. And that has really driven our firm since then is that you can take historic buildings, and you can make them lead platinum, you can measure the carbon, you can measure the quality of the water, the air, the light, all of these kind of things. And, um, and report back to your investors, not just your IRR, but your metric, uh, and not just your multiple on your invested income, but all these metrics about it was producing this much carbon when you bought it mm-hmm. it's, it's now doing x minus the water quality was this the light access to light was this so that's really driven our firm as we've grown and we've grown uh, now we're a firm that uh, at our height we own 5.5 million square feet we've sold some things we're down to about 4 million square feet that we own we do uh, property management third party on another million and a half i would really like to grow third party property management not because um, you know, obviously it's it's a low margin business and all of that, but it's because I think we're doing things in property management that everybody should be doing. Um, and one of Tim, the- th- What does everything yeah, mean? Okay, so one of the things that people don't focus on that often is to get a lead platinum designation. Uh-huh. It's, it's as much as what you do to the building in terms of investment as it is, how well do you know your tenants and how are you changing your tenants' behaviors? Uh-huh. And I just think most property managers have not wanted to go to that length to really understand are you using water bottles? How are people getting here? How are you disposing of your e-waste? How are you disposing of your of your trash? Are you recycling? And it's that catered experience that I think really drives uh, the value. And, and people want community. And I think we can do that, and we've proven you can do it in a third-party way as well as for the, our own account of things that we own. Um, most of our buildings, uh, in fact, all of them have a concierge service. I mean, these are things that I remember as a young lawyer, I was told, write these things out of a lease. People don't want to pay for these things. Well, you know what, people want them today because what people really want is more time in their day. Yeah. So if they can have their dry cleaning put in their car and they don't have to go an extra run to go get it, or if they can use Instacart to have groceries put in their car instead of sitting outside of their door at home, or Amazon delivered to your house, or their kid's birthday party, how do they rent tables? Well, we have someone who can help them. And it's not just for the CEO, it's for the assistant to the intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do I get restaurants at Bestia, one of the best restaurants in LA? We can help with that. And I think, we these are things that we're bringing to our we you know our asset management, light property management, our our full service property management. That I don't, you know, it's, I think part of it is because we we have passion and we have mission to what we do, and people care deeply about this. Mm-hmm. And I also think. They, we allow them to participate when they're successful. And so when the card says rising, they know they're a part of a team. Mm-hmm. So I'd really like to continue to grow. I mean, and the other part is we, the way we use technology. Um, you know, get it, when it, now our competitors are doing a lot of this stuff. So I don't want to say that we're the only ones, but just getting the building off paper and stop, the old, the old coming down and handing the rent check. I mean...
0: I, I get something under our door every Friday morning that's either a newsletter or a notice <laughs> that the elevators are going to be down on Saturday. Yeah. I, I don't understand. So that.
1: we're working on things like real effective building apps. I mean, I, where, where I want to see us go over the next year or two is in our buildings as a tenant, you have access to an app that's dedicated to people who are coming to see people in your office. You send it to them. They download what they register, it just like you do for Clear or anything like that. And they come in; they never have to check in because we know they're here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's privacy concerns people have, but I think security people are always wanting to do that in place of security. Right. And and so we're moving towards that. We're moving towards all of our interaction being digitally with our. We already do this. You know, there are no more newsletters that go underneath the door. No more, hey, you know, uh, the elevator is going to be out next Tuesday and it's a piece of paper that ends up all around the offices. (laughs) So, um,
0: and I think that's what people demand. I really do. And how much of this is talking about, because the technology and digital part are better afforded by huge companies. They are. So, you know, big property managers in the office world are going in that direction But if you don't have it as a small company, then you're going further and further behind.
1: So I am not a believer in customized software. I think you have to be able to buy something off the shelf and then Uh customize it. And Mm -hmm. I think some of our competitors are, they forget that they're not tech people. They hire a bunch of tech people and and things get lost. So we've been a little slower than I want to be because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just think it's 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 no different than air conditioning today. I mean, you would not have a great air conditioning in a building. Why would you not have great technology? And it's just part of the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. And so I don't care if it's not totally proprietary to me. Uh-huh.
0: We're going to yeah. move on the conversation, but I do have a couple of dr- okay. questions I'm, I'm curious about. So one is about what you've described, how that differs in how your company is run and manage internally. Your workforce is this a more appealing place. Do they want to work for you because of this kind of communication, this kind of technology or this mission? What, what does that mean in, in running and leading the company day to day?
1: Well, I would say a couple of things. Our culture is by far the most important thing, and one of the great things is our company is about sixty percent women, uh-huh. and about fifty percent uh, minority. Uh-huh. We want a voice at the table for a lot of a lot of different voices. We also have some guidelines that I firmly believe we we treat everybody with respect.
2: Uh-huh.
1: We also um, I firmly believe that um, people should have easy access to communicate, and I think the technology that we use allows people not to feel like boy if I'm not in the office by 7:30 I'm gonna be in real trouble it's much mm-hmm. more wow did you get your work done and I can see you got it done at six o'clock in the morning because that's all date right. stamped so I think people like that I we were really early on ditching the suits my father's here I mean like he still sleeps with a tie bar I can't <laughs> change that um, but I've, I've never understood that we, we have these people who go and compete in the Olympics and they compete in these big stadiums and they're working out in the most technologically advanced clothing and all that stuff. But yet we tell people, put on a suit and tie or a skirt and pantyhose and go be at your best in the most uncomfortable thing you can wear. It's like, right. do you come home at night and put on a suit if you're going to do some extra work? And so we were very early on saying, look, dress respectfully, but I don't really care about what you wear. I think that culture has come through I think treating people as adults is a, is a big piece of it, um, and I just, I, just I, I think people like working here because we because they are treated with dignity and respect and not as a number, mm-hmm. um, and so how, I think that's how we. And how much people.
0: does it matter in that rubric that you have a purpose or a meaning well, or mission? Me. in The organization <laughs> matters to you, and and we'll and we'll talk about returns in a moment because so I want to talk about that as well. But I'm just curious. If you articulate that there's a reason to be here, and you articulate something different or special about your company, I think it helps you come to work, and it helps it not just be about get rich quick, which is the very beginning of our conversation. Yeah. And in real estate, people create fortunes, but it also has you a different level of pride in what you do, yeah, and your company that you lead.
1: Well, I think you everybody has to have a uniqueness statement whatever they do. What makes you um, your company unique? And I and I I put it down to. To three things. One is our diversity and real estate is not a very diverse business. Yep. I think secondly is our use of technology, um, which allows people to communicate more effectively and efficiently. And then the third thing, because of technology, you also have to have a lot of personal interaction. And right. people go, wait a sec, what do you mean by that? I mean, we have some rules here. Tuesday, Wednesday are expected to be in the office days. Those are our let's get down to business talk face to face, Monday, Thursday, Friday. Now look, if you're a property manager, you need to be in all the time, but the expectation is we're going to have face to face meetings on a continual basis so that we can express ideas uh-huh. and once we know we're on the same page we go out we use technology to communicate so i think those are three things that make us different i also think look if you if you're if you're a climate change skeptic you're not going to last here <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to work shouldn't last anywhere yeah. that's a different story um and and if you're a if you're a hide the ball lock we don't have offices but lock your office lock my drawer kind of person it's just you're, you're gonna quickly feel uh, not not welcome. and mm-hmm. and those are the things I think we do well. I think our returns speak for themselves. We've really had some great success. Not, we're not as big as I want to be. I haven't raised the kind of money I want us to raise. You know, I, I, my mission is that every state should, not by regulation, but because it's good business, a lot of what we have is regulation in California. Mm-hmm. So whether it's some things in Title 24, I mean, every building should have sensors so that when you're not in the room, it's just a smart thing to do. Your building's more efficient. You make more money off the rent. But it's not it's not national yet. And my, it's our goal to take it to places like Utah and Colorado and Texas and
0: prove it out and make it affordable. It's going to go yes. elsewhere too. And, and it
1: is happening now. I mean, I got there's, this isn't some magic dust that I keep hidden because people are figuring it out, but it just needs to be a mantra of what you do. But I, I do think what we're doing that is different than anybody else is when someone invests in us and in a building, they should know what it's doing to the environment and what it's doing mm-hmm. to the people there. I mean, I think it's asinine that these buildings can have a thousand people in it and you can't get 110% of the people to care about homelessness in the neighborhood. You're there. I'm not talking about trying to solve homelessness for the whole region, but hey, let's get together toiletry bags and go hand it out and treat treat people in this community as people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and we're doing that. And we have a social piece of what we report back. It's usually around a cause or how much money we've raised as a community. But I just think that we we spend so much time staring at devices and all that that when we're not, people want to feel like there's a sense of the community, and I think that drives value in your office product or your multifamily, um, mm-hmm. or your or, or your retail, and so we're I think that's part of what we do. So our property managers are are, are having interactions in ways that others aren't because mm-hmm. we, we require it to do the mm-hmm. things that we do.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, go back to the story about this building for a second and talk about returns and the dollars that you put in to to become lead platinum for the, one of the first renovate, renovated buildings, particularly a building this old. But if, and I'm going to bet that the returns were extraordinary, but the re- extraordinary returns may have something to do with L.A. and something to do with the time of, of uh, the decade of the recession and recovery that we've been in. If you were to take a hit on putting that amount of stuff in, some kind of return hit, is that still something you or others should do versus – or does it bring the best returns?
1: It's a good question. So here's how I would answer it. Well, first, um, just on the metrics, we bought this for 140 a foot. We recapitalized it for 240 a foot, and then we sold it for 440 a foot. So mm-hmm. all within three years. So... Those numbers matter. Pretty good. Yeah. We also took it from 50% lease to 90% lease. Uh-huh. We believe through our case studies that we can show over and over again that when you make these kind of investments, people are willing to pay higher rent. Mm-hmm. One can say, "Well, look at the cycle you're in." I get, I get all that. You can't get away from one thing in real estate: you either buy it right or you don't buy it right. And and right. no amount of all of this stuff can make up for that. If you overpay for something and you buy it the wrong wrong time. You're you really dead. can't make it up. So uh-huh. so I, 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 I wouldn't link those two. I, I think you'd have to link it to who else bought in 2012? What are they? What was their return versus right. what we got? And and I think when you do that case study, apples uh-huh. to apples, it shows that you, uh-huh. you get a better return when you do these I, things.
0: I don't know that tenants pay for what's between the walls. I know they pay for what it feels like, what it looks like, what the lobby experience is, and how the experience of the building has changed. But between the walls and the energy efficiency may be less. Obvious I think that's to changing. People. I really
1: do, because I see these RFPs that come out and the questions that people ask. Uh-huh. And I think it's it's important to them to be able to go back to attract talent and say this is a LEED Platinum building, uh-huh. whether someone knows what LEED Platinum means or not. I think it matters to them though. Okay. I really do. Hey, uh, and
0: the last question is, I got to know about you working for your dad yeah. and what has your either dad brought to the equation or what, what's working with your dad mean to you? Just kind of talk about that.
1: Um, well, it's priceless. I mean, he's a, he's a wonderful human being. He's a generous, wonderfully nice person. Uh-huh. His biggest, uh, most influential mentor was a gentleman named Warren Christopher, former mm-hmm. secretary of state. My name's Christopher because of that. And Warren Christopher was always someone who said, you gotta be, you gotta listen first. And so my father really had throughout his career, taken that to heart. Um, he uh you know for most of my life was kind of an adonis i mean ran the new york marathon did all these things and so he got bulkier as a former football player said i got to lose weight and he just put his mind to it and he did it and Confirm. all these kind of things that are that are things that i aspire to be and and do um what's been interesting is that where he is at this point in his life is he's at 70 going on 78 and how he's changed he is very respectful of me and and flat defle- or Hands over things to me and respects that I can do things. So the father son relationship has really kind of changed uh, today. Yeah, he, uh, I think he's very grateful for everything that he's been able to do and sees that now he's on the legacy point, not the making money point mm-hmm. of his life. And so he is very concerned about if I get on a podcast and say we're going to be Lee Platinum, we better be Lee Platinum. <laughs> right. Um, he is a believer in in doing these things because he sees it. It makes money. He still wants to have his own office. He wants to be able to close the door. I don't think he can change. If someone's worked that way for 70 years, they're not going to stop working that way. Um, but he gets it that his grandchildren, you know, his grandson, uh, who's named after him at nine years old does more on an iPad than he, on an, I, an iPod than he does on his own computer. So he gets that. Right. Honestly, it has been hard for me to watch him age because he's, you know, I still think of my dad who would be up at five in the morning. So that's harder to see. I think it's harder for our team here is um, he's not the vocal presence uh, that he used to be, but he's in everything we do. And my, my greatest uh, uh, prideful thing about all of this is we'll be moving our offices next month to the trust building Mm -hmm. on, on spring street between fourth and fifth. And, the building we bought the trust building is the head was the headquarters of O'Malley and Myers. And in 1966, my dad spent his summer in that building and we're moving to the seventh floor, which is the floor he's on. So the last office building that he will be a part of an office in is the same one. It was the first one that he was ever in. So (laughs) we're really excited about that.
0: That's great. That's great. Let's pause the conversation with Chris for a few moments with some comments from the sponsor of the podcast, JLL. I had the opportunity to speak with Kyle Gehring, Kyle leads JLL's Clean Energy Solutions Group based in their Los Angeles office. Kyle, on the podcast, Chris Rising talks a lot about sustainability. How is that being priced into the office business, both in terms of rents achieved, as well as the monetization value of more green, resilient buildings?
2: Sustainability drives value for office assets in the sense that you're looking to sustain or keep something operational. And from JLL's clean energy perspective, it's chiefly around energy. By getting energy at a lower cost and allowing your budget to be fixed for that percentage, you can drive value for that asset. You can allow it to improve itself through investment in other core business, such as efficiency in other ways, or procure more equipment, or just overall enhance the building aesthetics. So from a clean energy perspective, sustainability drives value because you can reduce your overall energy expenses or fix them to some asset. Whereas if you do not have a renewable energy portion for this building, your cost can be volatile, your costs can go up, and you can erode some of your budget for other building maintenance or enhancements.
0: Now back to the conversation with Chris.
1: Well, th- I've, I've never been interviewed like this, so I, now, now I feel like I've got, I, I got a high bar here to, to to match, Matt, what you're doing. But why don't you talk a little bit about, you've been in the search business for a long business, the executive search business, but, yeah. it's, but what you do is much more than that. Right. Can you talk a little bit, number one, about w- coming out of college, coming out, you went to Oberlin, I believe, mm-hmm. and d- did you ever think you were going to be in the real estate business generally? And Mm -hmm. then what led you towards the executive search business?
0: Yeah, great question. So um, graduated Oberlin. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did not want to have a career in business. Business meant nothing to me. And like you, I was going to go teach. Yeah, And uh, I didn't. I was in Washington, D.C. So instead of teaching, I said, well, I should work on the hill and because it's a city of politics, and so I did briefly, and then I worked, um, Then, I, but I wanted to make a difference in the world, so I was either going to work for a congressman. I interned first for a congressman, and then I was going to get a real job, and the real job was going to be in some kind of a public interest group, and I didn't know what it was, so I was interested in the environment. I was interested in women's rights, for which I had very little credibility, yeah. and I was interested in not... Real estate. I was interested in cooperatives because I lived in a student housing co-op when I was at college, and thought that was a really interesting way for business to be conducted. And so, somehow, I got a job as a lobbyist for a group called the National Association of Housing Cooperatives. Wow, It was my first job. I think it was fourteen. 14- Did you know there
1: was a national association when you were looking?
0: I didn't even know what associations were, but they, so some. It, it, that's a longer story. But I got into that, and then. Over time, I realized I wasn't that interested in politics, wasn't that interested in lobbying, but I was interested in real estate. So that I wound my way through the real estate world, and about halfway through, I'm in my late 30s, and I hadn't found that thing in real estate that was, that was for me. I, the role didn't make sense, I did asset management, I did development, I did finance, so I did everything, and I was trying them all out, and I was, failing is the wrong word, but it was something like that. I was mediocre. That's yeah. the right word. It, it just hadn't found what fit for me. And then um, I was running a trade group called the Multifamily Housing Institute, which was a dream in some ways to run something. It was very exciting. Organization waiting for a purpose that it didn't yet have, actually. Um, but my wife had a relocation, job relocation to California. Oh, wow. So I had to take this kind of not yet figured out career at age 40 and at age 40, I tell the story, I got on the cover of National Real Estate Investor and Real Estate Forum in the same month. So that was cool. Yeah. It means zero, <laughs> right? But you're in Washington, so like that means something. Moved out to the West Coast, said, hey, like, let me go do this, let me go do that. Couldn't figure out what it was. And that experience base was not that valuable. As a 40-year-old going back into acquisitions or going back into asset management, yeah. it's a fish out of water. Oh. And I bumped into this recruiter, a guy named Peter Hall, who your dad will know. And uh, Peter said, how about if you join me? And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, I can't do that. What's recruiting all about? And I said, I'd give it a try, but only 60% of my time so that I could take the other 40% of my time and look for a real job. Uh-huh and uh, i had i had three or four initial assignments and on each of those assignments i was the proverbial fish to water and within about 3 4 months i said okay i'm going to give this a try it's a weird niche what
1: were the, so what what were the one or two things that that hit for you
0: yeah yeah all of a sudden the strategy to find people made sense to me the meaning of the role made a lot of sense to me because i'd experienced in this Broad background of weird stuff that didn't connect. I'd done all those jobs. So all of a sudden, the jobs made sense. I wanted every one of them, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I knew how to talk to people about it. I just immediately engaged well. And then over the years, the part that really hit me was I can make a difference here. I could be good at this. I could be great at this. And for the first time, I could talk to someone like your dad and hold my own because it's from this little niche place, I had a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. and I was a person seeking, having a lot to offer, until I found this exact platform where I could offer it. That's a very commission-based business, is it not? It's a very commission-based business. I'm not a salesy guy, so it's more, but you'll find this, and you know this, in uh, real estate, in brokerage, it's those who are more consultative who have the longest runways and longest careers because they're bringing intellectual capital to the table not alongside the sales skills. But it is commission based. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Was that a change in your thinking about the world when you go from not having a paycheck every two weeks to I got to get this done? Did that.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, there's a base, so that helps. Okay. And most, a lot of commission people have base, of course. But yeah. it did drive me, and it's interesting. It continues to drive me. And I hire in my firm non salesy people because that's our culture and our approach to the business. But the. The eat what you kill thing alongside the I'm not a salesy person is an awkward combination. But it drives me every day, so I fully embraced it, and I understand it in my gut.
1: And your office is in San Francisco?
0: We're in San Francisco. We have a person in Southern Cal, three people in the East Coast, so we're kind of all over.
1: And what's your, like, down the strike zone, middle of strike zone um
0: Uh, search that you do continually in the business today? Good question. So first of all, we do about 60, 65% of our works in the apartment business, half of which is low-income housing, half of which is conventional, which reflects the apartment business pretty well, and the other other one-third are in the other food groups of real estate. So one down the fairway means it's in multifamily because we understand that the best. Second, down the fairway, just looking at what the work has been over the past couple years, there's a boatload of need for asset managers. And it's really people who own, understand, strategize what to do with the building. There's others who buy. There's others who manage. But the strategist behind how to hold that portfolio and asset management, that's the function that's upgraded maybe the most. And therefore, there's been the most change in that area and the need for strong, smart people.
1: Let me ask you this because it's something I talk about a lot that I've I've never really truly, I mean, I get a lot of the arguments, but I've never never really truly understood why there aren't more women in leadership positions at real estate companies. And I asked Lisa that question Mm -hmm. too. From your perspective, Mm -hmm. are you seeing more women coming to the real estate business? Do you see more opportunity? What do you see from the executive side on women in real estate? You know, investment banking, you see women coming out of business school going there. You see it in other industries, product industries, the tech industry. It's just not been a big push over my career. Uh, Can you explain it, and do you think it's changing?
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll give personal stories as well as anecdotal in the world. I don't know statistics. Mm -hmm. Personal story, my wife's a senior professional in the real estate world, and she has battled through that to be successful. She's been very successful, Mm -hmm. very meaningful, but there is has been a battle, particularly of women, of her generation. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that changed the name of the game a little bit because those were the pioneers in a lot, lot of respects in what's been a male-dominated business. Second personal perspective is my 24-year-old mm-hmm. is about to go to planning school or MRED school uh, and works at the Urban Land Institute. So she's a young person who wants to be in this business and wants to make a difference in America's communities. So what does that mean? So there, there we are, two bookends Mm -hmm. in the world. Second thing is my first search. I had three. I had four first searches, and I quote them all the same way. But one was for a company where we didn't, we couldn't talk to a woman. The client says, "I want to. I want to. I'm not going to do the accent here, Mm. Matt. I want a guy. I want a guy to represent us on the West Coast." And the guy's going to have a big fraternity ring, and he's going to be between 36 and 40 years old. I hope my client doesn't recognize my doing his voice, which I do all the time. We didn't speak to a single woman. Last answer to your question, I think the world is changing. It has been a male-dominated business, obviously, from what I said, particularly the transaction business. And the amount of business that does get done in informal networking ways that guys have had for decades together— growing up in the business, skiing, drinking, golfing, yeah. that those pathways make it brutally difficult for success for women. And the business may be done at 11 at night, and maybe women have a five-year period where they can't be out at 11 yeah. like they have a kid. Yeah. So those are big headwinds. They're all changing. Yeah. In some segments of the business, particularly the brokerage transaction world, the, the headwinds are harder. There's great examples of massively successful women in this, but it's harder there. But then in the other functions of commercial real estate, asset management, property management, everyone says property management, and that's unfair because it's all women, right? But HR, CFO, investment banking, plenty in both sides. Yeah, it's not And push it further also because your clients, if, say, you're an apartment company and your clients have different colors as well as different genders, and genders, there's three and four genders, not just one and two genders anymore. Yeah. But if you're cli- if the people work at a company designing an apartment building or designing an office building or designing the services in a hotel or a retail space, it has to reflect an, uh, reflect an understanding yeah. of that diverse background. And not everyone is in the top 10 or 20% of the economic scale, mm-hmm. and we're serving those folks too. So how do we understand them as customers? Well,
1: I think you're naturally doing the podcast. This has been really, I really enjoyed it. Hopefully, uh, we We got equal time in all this. I don't know. <laughs> we did. We're fine. Let, let's do last question. So, okay.
0: what? What's your talk about a great moment from the podcast? Not this one, but mm-hmm. in your experience of doing that, and and let's share a couple of stories yeah. of things that because I've been blown away yeah. doing this.
1: Well, I'll tell you. I think uh, I mentioned it early earlier, but my interview with Sonny Kelsey. Um, I'm so pleased for his success recently, but his willing to be willingness to be honest. And you don't mm-hmm. necessarily think a, a, a an investment banker um coming on the show would be so honest. Um and also being honest about the things that are important to him outside of work. And mm-hmm. so that was a that was a great one. I think uh Darla Longo I had online and mm-hmm. to her to really talk about the difficulties she faced in the seventies being an industrial right. broker who was a woman and some of the aw- you know, I'm to say awful, but some just they were awful things that she had to go through and the pride she takes today in being one of the most successful industrial brokers uh, to have that humanness come out uh, Mm -hmm. from her. I thought was wonderful. Lisa is is an all time favorite ones that have really got me excited. uh, Recently I had a Cindy uh, Flynn on and Cindy, I met her husband through YPO. I just wanted her on because she's a 33 year old woman who's pregnant who has a seven-person woman-only law firm and they don't have office space?
0: Wow, don't have office space.
1: No, they don't need it. They Uh-oh. they have a, a, a like a, a WeWork or not a WeWork, but they have a place where they can. They have to have a conference room in Orange County. They can do it. But it was such a cool story of like I'm gonna make my life mm-hmm. what I want it to be. I want to mm-hmm. be a mother. I want to be a business person. I want to be an entrepreneur. And I don't need to. I can do it all through technology. And it just was like that's cool. It works. And. um as I, as I do this more and more, you know, the real estate's an important backdrop. Um, but since real estate's a backdrop of everything, it's really the personal stories of people saying, This happened to me. This is how I felt. This is how I responded. This is where I'm going. Right. And, you know, it's, I mean, I say every day, I mean, I wake up every day. And if I wanted to just focus on all the horrible things that are happening to our company, so therefore me, right. it's, that's a horrible existence. Right. And we could go out of business at any time. And if Mm -hmm. I focused on that, and so I like being around people who have the same option. I can look at it as the worst pressure ever or look at it as an opportunity. And that's Uh what drives me Uh in these things is getting to know someone. And then hopefully there's a 24-year-old out there um, who says, I can be in this business. Uh Yeah, and and that's, that's what I like. What about you? So
0: 24-year-olds uh, are my avatar for this as well because they're in my mind. But I'll tell a couple stories. One, not a podcast story, just because yesterday I was at a ULI breakfast board at San Francisco uh, Council, and I sat next to a friend. I said, how you doing? He said, it's unbelievable. And he's a guy who's 60 years old, 62 years old. And he said, happy. I love my job. I love where I live. Life is just cool. I'm excited about it. And and I feel the same way. So that first thing, but it just charged me up. And you said exactly the same thing. But I'll I'll riff on four or five moments from the podcast that blew me away. And they all become kind of personal. So, you know, obvious one, Sam Zell, Mm -hmm. while in college, has the gumption to tell a property owner developer that he needs to help them figure out college housing. (laughs) And he's a little bit of confidence that guy. Yeah. But, you know, and and that continued from that moment for him. Another moment, um, Camden Property Trust, when they decided they wanted to be one of America's best places to work and they found the Fortune 100 best places to work contest, if that's the right word, and they put everything in the company against we're going to get on that list and stay on that list. And what does that mean for a company? They want it to be a great place to work. You said the same thing in the conversation. And what rigor does it take to be at that level in that public of an environment, as a public mm-hmm. company. Other great stories, you know, Digital Realty Trust. Fr- mm-hmm. friend of mine, Bill Stein, runs yeah. digital. Yeah. One of the 10 largest REITs, yes, public company, are. global company, and in a space that did not exist in the world 15 years ago. Yep. It didn't mean anything. Uh, another moment from the podcast, one of my very favorites, Marianne Ann Tai, who's a broker yeah. with CB, an amazing woman in yes, New York, is. had never heard the word real estate until age 36. She's in a, I'm going to get the word, Zeparella. What's it the water taxi? Yeah. In Venice. And some guy says, you should try real estate. And then she did, and then became the most successful woman in New York, which is the hardest yes. city in the world, in a male-dominated business. And has been a legend in that business. So, how do people do those things? And you know, last week I interviewed a guy named Cedric Bobo, who's using the, in my words, the using real estate to teach inner city kids to not be disenfranchised in their neighborhoods, so they can make investments in real estate and gain financial literacy. Wow, he's doing it. He's about to do it in Los Angeles. He's doing it in the Bronx. He's doing it in Atlanta. He's doing it in Detroit private equity guy, turned his career into that. Unbelievable. So we have lots of stories in our world. And there's personal stories, there's deep stories, there's ways that people have found success. And I will tell you, for me, what do I get out of it? It rubs off on me. Yeah, (laughs) I agree with you. Right? And so my bar has risen considerably because of the conversations I'm able to have with these amazing people. Yeah, I
1: agree. I think... um, I, I'm very passionate about it myself, it, makes, it gives me a, a passion for life, and, um, and this one does too. This has been terrific.
0: This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best in class solutions for clients, whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com slash voices. That's jll.com slash voices.